Matthew chapter 21 this morning, as we continue our journey through the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. As you find your way there, let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. Scripture says that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. You can be seated. There is a popular meme on the internet. If you don't know what a meme is, it's a picture. They use these a lot on the internet and has a picture and it'll have some kind of little pithy or, or saying on there. But there's one that floats around. I've seen it quite often and it has a, a, an old Sunday school-esque from the 60s or 70s picture of Jesus in the temple. And the question says, if anyone ever asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is in the realm of possibilities. Now, the reason I start with that is because this is exactly where we're at this morning. We're at Jesus cleaning out the temple. But it's one of those texts that we come to that almost everybody knows. Even people who are not really believers in, in, in Christ, uh, even people who would not consider themselves very religious, a lot of people understand and know that there was a time and a story in Jesus' life where he went into the temple and he drove out all the people uh, from the temple, the, the money changers and those who were selling things. But again, it's one of those passages that, although it's so well known, is very misunderstood as to what is actually taking place in this passage. And it's one of those things that really people can't seem to wrap their minds around. And it's one of those texts that shows us as Jesus, not as is often tried to be portrayed uh, by the modern world, as Jesus just being this very... um, very uh, withdrawn and, and always about love and always about kindness. And we know that Jesus was. Jesus was love exemplified. Jesus was kindness and grace and mercy exemplified. But the way he's tried to be defined in the world today is that because he was loved, that he never confronted anyone. That because he was gracious and loving, that he never confronted anyone. He was always just very accepting and, and welcoming. And Jesus was accepting and welcoming to those who were humbled over their sin. Jesus was welcome and accepting to those who were confronted by the power of the truth of the gospel and responded accordingly. But to those who stood in opposition to the truth of who he was, to those who stood in the opposition of the truth of who God was and the claims and the commands that God had issued, Jesus was very confrontational. And the same is true today. Jesus says, if anyone comes unto me, I will welcome him in. He says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is exactly the same Jesus that we find today, that if we are humble and broken over our sin, humble and broken over who we are, we can come to Christ and we are assured that we will find acceptance and forgiveness in Him. 
But we also are very assured by the Scripture that if we come and we are proud and arrogant in our sin, celebratory in, in, in our disobedience against God, we will not find love and acceptance from Christ, but we will find His confrontation. We will find His judgment. And so here's this passage of Scripture where Jesus is cleansing out the temple. Now, in a few moments, we're going to talk about this. This is not the very first time that Jesus has done this. This is actually the second occurrence of Jesus cleansing out the temple. The first one occurred at the very beginning of his ministry. And his first, uh, the, after he started his public ministry, his first trip to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. But I want to just remind you for just a moment to go back just to the previous part of this chapter that we looked at last week to really, again, set the picture and the narrative of exactly what's happening. Because Jesus has spent these last three and a half years in his public ministry really attempting to avoid public acclaim, to avoid the crowds, to avoid being uh, celebrated as this miracle worker. He wanted to go in, do the miracles that God had called him to do, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cause the blind to see and the lame to walk. And he was doing all of that, not because he was a ministry of miracles, but because he was the Messiah. He was using those miracles to point to his legitimacy of being the Messiah, but also to point to the truth of some type of question or saying, and he would always confront them back. But now we find Jesus in this very bold public proclamation, allowing the people to celebrate him. Every other moment, he's avoided that. He's, he's, he's walked outside of the way, avoided the crowds, but now in this very public declaration, he is saying, I am the king. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God, and I have come to establish myself as such. So as he's made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey, all the people are celebrating, all the people are praising. Now the other gospel writers tell us at the end of that day, and we mostly believe this was happening on a Monday, so that was the triumphal entry was on a Monday, the other gospel writers tell us at the end of that day he went back out to Bethany, and then he came back into the city. So now we're on Tuesday of the Passover week. He comes back into Jerusalem, and he tells us that he goes directly to the temple. So the first thing that I want you to notice is his demonstration. And that's just found there in those opening words, and Jesus entered the temple. Now, Jesus was not going here to, to start a revolution. Again, this is what the Jews thought was going to happen. It was the true Messiah was going to come on scene and start this revolution. But what Jesus was doing, he was going to the temple in a demonstration because he wanted to show the people and to correct the perversion that was happening inside the temple of God. Because the scribes and the Pharisees had, had changed almost everything around the context of what God had established in the Old Testament of the law and what was supposed to be happening. They had perverted so much of it. Jesus was going to the temple to say, I'm going to correct the wrongs that are happening. I'm not going to start an earthly revolution, but I'm going to call these people back to a true spirituality. I'm going to call these people back to a true worship of God. I'm going to call these people back to understand exactly what it means to worship the true and the living God. The Jews expected that the Messiah would come in and attack the Romans, but actually what we find here is Jesus come in and He begins to attack, in a sense, His own countrymen. He's correcting them. He's not worried about what the Romans are doing. He's worried about what His own people are doing because What's happening in the temple is so far off base from what God had intended. Now it's the time of Passover. At the time of Passover, all the Jewish people were coming back to Jerusalem. So not just those who lived inside the city, but those who lived 
all scattered out throughout all the regions. And it was said, and by tradition, that the only way that you could really celebrate the Passover was to come back to the city of Jerusalem. And so all of these men would have been coming back to offer sacrifices, to pray at the temple, to do ritual cleansing, to give their offerings there in the temple. Remember, some estimate that millions of people would have been gathered here inside of Jerusalem. And because there were so many people, and because the city was so limited on size to accommodate all those people, and because people wanted to be actually in, quote-unquote, the city of Jerusalem for this event, at the time of the Passover, the scribes and the Pharisees would actually temporarily extend the borders of the city further outside of the actual walls, out into the closing regions, so that during Passover, even if you weren't actually staying in the city, technically by their determination, you were still actually in Jerusalem as they extended the boundaries of the city. So all of these people are gathered here. And, and the reason I want us to get that in our mind is to think about that anytime Jesus would have went to the temple and done this, it would have been a powerful statement. Because there always would have been people there offering sacrifices, doing things like that. But especially at this moment. And this just shows us that on God's timetable, that all of this was perfectly planned by God. We can't ever get over that understanding that what's happening here in Jesus' life was not just some accident. It didn't just happen by chance. But everything that Jesus did in His ministry was perfectly planned and orchestrated by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Scripture tells us, before the foundation of the world. So everything we see happening now in Jerusalem was planned even before the world was brought into existence. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit knew that on this day, Jesus would enter into the temple and establish Himself not only as the Messiah, but also as the Lord of the temple. They're there worshiping. The scribes and the Pharisees are there saying that they're worshiping God. Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, I am the God you're worshiping. I am him. And I'm here to establish that truth and that fact. And this was the demonstration. He's showing the people that their real problem, the Jewish people's real problem was not the Roman occupation. The Jewish Jewish people's real problem was their sin before a holy and a righteous God. The Jewish people's real problem was that they needed to evaluate their own lives and realize that they were not worshiping God in spirit and in truth as God demanded. So Jesus goes to the temple because this is exactly where this needs to take place. He had to go to the heart of the matter to address the heart of the problem. It's all about this true worship. So this is his demonstration, but also in that verse, I want you to notice his anger. He demonstrated by going to the temple and doing this in this very public place, this very holy place. Now, we need to, again, put our minds around this. As as Christians in the South, we have incorrectly, oftentimes, attributed this building as the church. Now, this building is not the church. This building is a building. It's the place where the church gathers. It's the place where the church meets. But we are the church. If this building were to just disappear tomorrow, It doesn't change anything about Barberville Baptist Church because we, the people in this congregation, are Barberville Baptist Church. There's nothing holy about this building. Now, we set it apart to do special things here as we worship God and take communion together and sing, but there's nothing holy about this building. It's just wood and stucco and glass. But now, in the Jewish world, they understood and they believed that the, the temple was a holy place, and the reason it was a holy place was because God's Spirit dwelt there inside the Holy of Holies. So it was very elaborate. In fact, if you go back to the, to the days of Solomon, the most beautiful temple that was ever built. 
I mean, just this gorgeous edifice of, of gold and silver and, and, and fine jewels and, and just, and just incredible. I was, I was reading uh, this past week as I was studying about this and just reminding myself of, of the different temples because now they're in the second temple. That first temple was destroyed during the exile. And so now they're in the second temple. And even this second temple had been had been really kind of renovated and designed uh, by the Romans because they thought that that would bring them, uh, uh, they thought that that would make the Jewish people uh, acclaim to them more. But you think about these beautiful buildings that had been built, I mean, and just massive structures taking up, uh, they estimate almost like 30 acres of land for the temple. And it was a holy place. And so for Jesus to come in and to say what he's about to say and to declare what he's about to say was the most confrontational thing that Jesus could do in this point in his ministry. Because there's no way that the scribes and the Pharisees could not respond back to him. They couldn't ignore him. Because here he is, not just in Jerusalem, in the holy city, but he's inside the temple itself. He's in the place where all of this worship takes place. And Jesus knew this. The reason that Jesus is in the temple doing exactly what he's doing now is because he's pushing the scribes and the Pharisees to exactly the place where he wants them to make everything happen according to his plan that he would be crucified on the right day at the right time. So we see this demonstration. Let's look at his anger there. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, as I said earlier, this is actually the second time that Jesus has done this. I want to read that first time to you. And this is the first time is when we find that, uh, that one that really most people are most familiar with. But what are you, we really see here is these are bookends on Jesus' ministry here. And I think it's really incredible to read what Jesus says in John chapter 2 when he did this for the first time. And then you see him doing this again, and you see how what he says in this first temple cleansing relates to what is happening in this second temple cleansing, and then what is going to happen in the rest of these days following leading up to his crucifixion. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 says that the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now think about that. Zeal for your house will consume me. What? Throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry, we see this. He is consumed with the proper worship of God because the people have been deceived. Now, we can't really blame the Jewish people themselves because they were just doing everything they knew to do. The scribes and the Pharisees were the spiritual guidance for them in their lives. What we have to blame is the scribes and the Pharisees because they are the ones who have perverted the true worship of God. And so Jesus was consumed with this through the entirety of his ministry of drawing people back to what a true worship of God looked like. It continued, it says, Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Now, let's pause for just a moment. So it's incredible that here at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is referencing his own death. He's referencing his his death and his burial and his resurrection. Because when he says destroy this temple, they took it to mean the temple that they were standing in. But Jesus, he says, I'm talking about me. He says, you destroy me, this temple, because who is God? He is God. He was the true temple. He was the true representation of God. And he says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it's really like these bookends here at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. Jesus goes into the temple, cleanses the temple, declares himself to be the Messiah because he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. I will show you and demonstrate who I am. And now here we come to the very end of his ministry. Jesus comes back to the temple and he's doing this cleansing again. It had to be done for a second time. And really, that's the disappointment in fact that we find is that when false teaching is prevalent, it oftentimes does not just have to be done once, but it has to be done on multiple occasions. It has to be cleansed and has to be dealt with because just as soon as one thing is dealt with, something else will begin to creep in. And we find that throughout the history of the church. In fact, John MacArthur pointed out, he says it was part out of Martin Luther's great hatred of indulgences, the supposed buying of God's grace for money, that the Protestant Reformation was born. Believers today should cry out, as Luther did, for Christ to cleanse the church of its modern defilements, including making merchandise of the gospel. Judgment still must begin with the house of God, end quote. So what we've seen over time is the same things begin to happen. Now, we would not say today that in churches that you see some of the, uh, the falseness that the uh, scribes and the Pharisees were performing here. But we find many, many other things. As I thought about through this week, I thought about, well, first off, we see the, the Catholic discrepancies that they've been taught over years and years. And Martin Luther rose up against it in the Reformation, against the idea of indulgences and, and, and those kind of things. But even still recently, the Catholic Church has bought back the concept of indulgences, uh, that you can pay a certain amount of money and that you can have people rescued out of purgatory, or that if you go and touch, touch and, and uh, certain holy relics and shrines, that you can take years off of your time in purgatory. But then I thought about the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that teaches that, you know, if you give certain amounts of money, then God will bless you more. And over the time, churches have tried to deal with those things, and we push those certain types of things out, but then something else begins to creep in, and now perhaps in our time, the prosperity gospel is still there, but now we're dealing with a much more liberal gospel, a gospel that says that there is no judgment for sin, a gospel that says that there is no uh, need to repent, a gospel that says that God will just love you any way that you are. All you have to do is just be happy in yourself, and God is happy with you. And the reason that all those things are so dangerous is that it distorts the true worship of God. Because we're not worshiping a true God if we have created a God of our own imagination. So Jesus is angry in this moment. It's important as believers that we understand that anger is not necessarily sinful. Perhaps most of us in growing up, our brother or sister, for need to apologize to them. You know, we shouldn't be angry for those kinds of things. We oftentimes are chastised for our anger. 
But what we find is that righteous anger is a good thing. Righteous anger drives people to do things that are good and holy and just. Righteous anger that is not going the way that God intended it to happen. Angry when we see the effects of sin on people's lives. It's okay to be angry when we see wickedness in the world. It's okay to be angry at those things. That is a righteous anger. And so Jesus was perfectly right in this. How do we know that? Because the Scripture tells us that Jesus was angry, but He did not sin. Jesus tells the Scripture in His life. So what's happening inside the temple? Let's talk about that for just a moment. Again, all these people are here in Jerusalem. Again, millions of people coming into the city. They're coming to the temple to do a few things. They're coming to the temple to offer sacrifices. They're coming to the temple to pay temple tax. It was something that they were required to do at the time of Passover. So anytime you have large groups of people gathered into one place, there's always a few people who figure out how they could make money off of the people who are gathered there. And this is exactly what is happening in this moment. Because... The currency of the day, even though they were in Jerusalem, the currency that was being used was a Roman currency. That's what everybody used. It was the common currency of the day. But the Scripture mandated that the temple tax had to be paid with the Jewish drachma. It had to be paid with that Jewish coin. So if you were coming into Jerusalem and you needed that drachma to pay the temple tax... How convenient would it be if you didn't have to go anywhere else but to the temple, and there sitting outside of the temple would be someone who would convert your money for you? Now, in a sense, there's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing wrong with changing currency. If you've ever gone on a mission trip, it's something you have to do. You arrive in a new country, you take your American currency, and you convert it uh, to whatever that currency is of that country so that you can do things while you're there. Nothing illegal, nothing immoral, nothing problematic about that. But what was happening in this was that the men who were doing that were charging absorbent exchange rates for the people who were coming to the temple. So instead of just charging an amount of what it took for them to do the work, they were charging them double, triple, quadruple the amount of time or the amount of money of what they should have been charging them. And it was the same thing with the animals. So when you had to offer sacrifice, when you would bring an animal to the temple, that animal had to be approved by the Pharisees Uh, excuse me, by the priests in order to be offered as a sacrifice. Now, for many people, because they were traveling so far, it would have been difficult to bring these animals along on this journey without the assurance of when they got there that that animal would be approved for sacrifice. So again, how convenient would it be for if you just arrive at the temple and here's a bunch of people with all these animals ready at the go, and you could just buy one and take it into the temple for sacrifice. Again, nothing inherently wicked about buying an animal from someone else, but the problem was was that the priests had arranged it so, was that the only animals they would approve for sacrifice were the animals that were for sale in the courtyard of the Gentiles outside of the temple. So you couldn't even bring one of your own in. You had to buy one at four, five, six times the amount of what you would pay for it anywhere else, had to be bought there, and they would approve those animals for sacrifice. It was, in, it, was, it was kind of interesting. One commentator, who, who's a more modern commentator, uh, pointed it was to the idea of buying food at the airport, right? You go into the airport, and all of a sudden, a cheeseburger that costs 69 cents in the parking lot is $6.90 just across the gate once you get behind security. Because they know you need to eat, and they know you'll pay it. This is exactly what was happening here inside the temple. This is what infuriated Jesus. It wasn't the fact that they were just changing the money. It was the fact that people were coming to the temple to worship God and they were being extorted in order to do so. 
It was the fact that people were coming out of an obedience because they desired to worship a true and holy God, and they were being perverted in their worship because they were being taken advantage of. This is why it's so important that we look at the concept of true worship, because brothers and sisters, this same thing continues to happen in the church today. If somebody goes to a church and they're promised the only way that God will love you or forgive you is if you offer this amount of money to the church. Or if you do this certain thing, it is a perversion of God's gospel. And this is what made Jesus so angry. This is what made Jesus so frustrated, so to the point that he drove all of these people out of the temple. Now, isn't it interesting? Notice here in this moment, Jesus is inside the temple. Thousands of people probably gathered around him. It'd be hard to estimate the number of people in this moment who are watching all of this take place. But there would have been a lot of people there. That the scripture says, or, or demonstrates here, that Jesus, nobody tried to stop Jesus from doing what he was doing. There would have been temple guards there, watching over the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees were there because the scripture tells us that they were watching all this happen. The people who were, who were offering these animals for sale and doing this monetary exchange, they were all obviously there. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus does this, there's not one person who stands up against him. It's a demonstration of his power here in this moment. The religious leaders were no doubt afraid if they tried to do anything that the people would turn on them. The merchants were afraid of the people as well because the people knew they were being taken advantage of. They couldn't do anything because the merchants were in cahoots with the Pharisees. But in fact, just a few years after uh, Jesus um, turned over the tables in the temple, just a few years later, there would actually be an uprising in the temple of the people against the merchants who were doing these things. And in fact, it's not even so that Jesus did this. It's not even the fact that he just drove out those who were buying and selling. Mark tells us that he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. At that period of time where the court of the Gentiles was, because it was such a large part of the city there in the middle, and the court of the Gentiles was open to anyone Jew or Gentile alike, uh, it was a common shortcut through the city. If you were on one side of the city and needed to get to the other side, instead of having to walk all the way around, you could just shortcut through the temple, through the court of the Gentiles, and out the other side to the city. Jesus said he was, drove all these people out, and he was not even let anyone coming through as a shortcut through the temple. They couldn't even bring their merchandise, what they had bought on one side of the city to the other. Why? Because he's establishing here the worship of God. He's establishing here that this is not some casual thing that we gather here to do. That we shouldn't take it for granted. That it shouldn't just be a shortcut through from one place to the other. That this was a place that they had set aside to do something special. We find his demonstration and his anger, but I want you to also notice his declaration. Look at verse 13. The Scripture says, He says to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now in this, Jesus is hearkening back to two passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7, which says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, has this house, which is 
called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship. A place of set apart for the worship of a holy and a just and a righteous God. And Jesus says, but you have made it a robber's den. He's hearkening to the idea outside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, there were caves in the mountains where all the thieves lived. So when they came in to do their work in the city, they would flee outside to Jerusalem where they felt safe and they would hide in the caves in the mountains surrounding the city. And Jesus says, this is exactly what you've done. God has said that we would have a house of prayer, a place of worship, a place to gather together. He said, but you've turned it into a place of thievery and robbery. He, he's really pointing down again in such a very powerful way the perversion of the truth of, the God's, of, of God's law and God's word that the Pharisees have done. There would, have been no, there would have been no doubt in the mind of the Pharisees who were standing around and the priest what Jesus was saying in this moment. We kind of casually read it over and say, okay, Jesus is, is emphasizing that we should get together and worship God and pray. And, and, and it's even been kind of taken to this far-reaching concept. Maybe some of you growing up in church, um, I can remember visiting churches before where they, they said, well, we can't have a yard sale in the fellowship hall because Jesus you know, said, you know, my house shall not be, uh, 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 you've, you've made it into a den of thieves. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not condemning having a yard sale in the church parking lot. He's talking here about the heart of the matter because their hearts were corrupted. The, 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 the priests and the Pharisees were not there to worship God. They were there to make money. They were not there to bring the people to a true understanding of who God was. They were there to obtain power over the people. That was the reason that Jesus was such a threat to them. He was such a threat to them because he, they knew that if Jesus was truly the Messiah, that everything they had built their life upon would fall apart. That once the people truly understood the message that Jesus was declaring, they would have no power over the people anymore. That Jesus makes this bold declaration. And in this moment, in the end of all this, you can imagine the chaos that's occurring. You can imagine the, uh, the people running to and fro and, and, and people just really kind of some people probably just standing around in awe trying to figure out exactly what's happening. And here in the middle of the temple, now we see his compassion. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I'd never really thought about this verse until I was studying this this week. But you have Jesus driving out all of those who are in opposition to the true gospel. Driving out these money changers, driving out these merchants, driving out all those who stand in opposition. And in the midst of that, then all the blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple. Now, all these other miracles that Jesus had performed, for the majority of them, have been outside. They've been out in the wilderness, out on the outreaches. But now, here is the Messiah standing in His temple, standing in the temple of God, and He begins to do this miraculous miracle work. And I thought about this. is that now the temple had been cleansed and ministry could happen. 
Now, I don't want to run too far down this rabbit trail, but I think that's a problem with a lot of churches. Is the reason they don't see ministry happening inside their churches is because the temple hasn't been cleansed. They're worshiping a false god. They they're, have perverted the gospel somehow. They are doing something, things that are happening. And in fact, I, I have heard stories in the last several weeks of churches where there are people who are doing things inside of the church that are so obviously sinful, but yet people are unwilling to deal with it. And brothers and sisters, how could we ever expect God to do things in His church if we're unwilling to do what He has asked us to do? If we're unwilling to deal with sin in our own lives, let's start with ourselves first. Before we look at anybody else, if we're unwilling to deal with the sin in our own life, how will we ever expect God to do anything in our lives? If we're unwilling to deal with the sin in the church. And so here, now Jesus has cleansed the temple, and now this beautiful moment of ministry takes place. That the blind and the lame come to him and he heals them. It's the wonderful thing about Jesus' ministry that we see over and over again that anytime anyone comes to Jesus humbly, what does he do? He never turns them away. And if you're here this morning and you know as you sit here today that you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, here's the good news. He will not turn you away. Come to Him, humbly and broken over your sin. And the promise is that you will be healed. You will be changed. And we're not talking about physical healing per se. We're talking about the most important need that people have, and that is spiritual healing. Because the same ministry of miracles that we see Jesus performing in those who are physically ill, we see Jesus most often doing in those who are spiritually ill. It's one of those misunderstood statements in the Scripture when Jesus promised, He says, greater things will you do than I have done when He's speaking to His disciples. And so oftentimes people say, oh, well, Jesus healed the sick. That means we can heal the sick because we'll do greater things. And Jesus raised the dead. That means that we can raise the dead. No, the greater thing that Jesus is talking about there is that we would have the opportunity to preach the gospel in further places and to more people than even He had the opportunity to do in His ministry. What is greater in this world, in the kingdom of God, than seeing somebody come to faith in Christ. You could have someone whose lame leg is made to walk, and that's a wonderful thing, but guess what? They could die next week. What would be a greater miracle in their lives is to come to know the true and the living Son of God and have their sins forgiven, so that even if they still walk with a limp in this world, they're going to rejoice with Christ in eternity in heaven forever. So Jesus is healing in the temple, and he's doing all this miracle. So he's doing this, again, as a bold confrontation to the Pharisees and to the priests and to the scribes. Why? Because they have sought to deny every part of who Christ is, to deny his miracle-working ability, to deny his Messiahship. So now, not only are they going to hear about it, they're going to visibly see it. They're going to watch this happen. And so are all of these thousands of people who are gathered around inside the temple in this moment. Jesus has now drawn all this attention to himself because he's cast out all the money changers. And now he's going to draw more attention to himself because as these blind people come and these lame people come, he's going to heal every single one of them. Imagine what a moment this was. All eyes are on Jesus. And this first blind man walks up and Jesus heals him. 
Now you know, as any of us know, that in that moment, this blind man didn't just open his eyes and turn around and walk away. No, as soon as his eyes were opened, he began to shout. And he began to praise God. And he began to celebrate. And then this lame man came up who could hardly walk, had been stumbling all his life, and Jesus healed him. And again, you know this man didn't just turn around and casually walk off, but he began to joyously praise and to celebrate who Jesus was. Person after person after person after person, as Jesus heals him, we see his compassion on people who are hurting. The Lord is in his temple doing his work. Which brings us next to his exaltation. Look at verse 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. So as all of this is taking place, I love how Matthew kind of slides this in there. That when the scribes and the the chief priests and the scribes saw all the wonderful things that he had done. He's making it clear here. Jesus is doing nothing here but beautifully wonderful things. And these people are so hardened in their heart that they become angry about it. Not just angry, but indignant. And so these children are gathered here. And I love that Matthew points this out too, because now the children are in the temple shouting the same thing that had been shouted as Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. And remember, son of David is a, is a moniker of the Messiah. So even these children are understanding this. And it's really perhaps, most commentators point to a couple of different things. Number one is these children are imitating what they have seen. They were out in the streets and they saw their parents and their grandparents celebrating at Jesus as he's made his way into the city. But also, they're excited because they've been seeing miracles taking place. And so a commentator after commentator pointed out that this is one of those texts where we should never think that children cannot grasp and understand the truth of who God is. Because here are these children in the temple, and they are praising God, praising Jesus as the Messiah because of what they have witnessed and what they have heard Him do on that day. It's part of the reason why, as we look around this room this morning, we have a room full of kids in our main service. We don't separate them out. We don't put them aside. Because we know and understand that even at a young age, children have the ability to grasp the concepts of the Scripture. Jesus said, turn not away the little children. And so here we find these children celebrating and praising God. And it's so funny because the, the, the chief priest in the church says, Jesus, do you not hear what these children are saying? They're calling you the Messiah. Jesus, you need to say something to these children. You need to do something about this. And no, Jesus says, yep. Have you never heard? Have you never read? And again, this is one of those cutting moments. Because when Jesus, he says this over and over again, because he's pointing them back to the Old Testament. And he says, you priests, you scribes, you Pharisees, you ones who say that you know everything there is to know about the Bible, have you never read what the Scripture says? Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So again, we find a fulfillment of prophecy. Again, of the Messiah. Now, here Jesus, Matthew again points this out, that even in the praising of the children in the temple, them praising Jesus, it's another fulfillment of what had been proclaimed in the Old Testament, that out of the mouths of infants and children, 
and that they would praise Him. I was reminded of Proverbs 22, verse 6, as I thought about this, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know that those children who witnessed what they saw there in the temple never forgot those moments. Never forgot the day that they were in the temple and they saw Jesus not only drive out and cleanse the temple, but heal those who were blind and those who were lame. The last thing I want you to notice is verse 17. And this is his judgment. It says he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now, Bethany was where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It was where he was making his home during this time of Passover leading up to his crucifixion. But what I want us to hone in on there is those first four words. And he left them. The language that's used there is the idea of being left behind. Really, this was Jesus' judgment upon them. It's not just the fact that he was just walking out of the temple and going home, but really there's a, a firm statement being made by Matthew here is that he is exposing judgment upon the priests and upon the scribes and upon the Pharisees. We know that ultimately this destruction will happen in AD 70 when the entire temple is destroyed. And all of this is brought to a, a crashing halt. But Jesus is, is kind of prefacing that and kind of pointing to that as this time where he walks out of the temple and bringing, calling judgment down upon them just by his departure. Because as he leaves... He's exposing that they're no longer, they say he's no longer welcome there. They don't want him there anymore. And he says, okay, then I'm gone. I'm leaving. I'm departing out. Brothers and sisters, there's such powerful testimony here. Such powerful things to know and to understand about true worship and what God demands and what God expects. We have to be very careful. Because even as people who love theology and love the Word, we can very easily begin to, in our own minds, create things about the worship of God that get in the way of what true worship looks like. So we have to always be evaluating, always be considering, always be looking at our own lives as are we worshiping God the way He desires to be worshiped, or are we allowing other things to sneak in there? Are we allowing false thoughts and ideas about God? Brothers and sisters, we have to be very, very careful in a world that we live in. I've seen so many people over the past five to ten years who have allowed the pressures of this world to cause them to walk away from the faith. Or have caused them to believe incorrect things or to proclaim incorrect things about the gospel because the pressures of this world are too much for them. The desire to be liked, the desire to be accepted, the desire to be a part of what's happening in this world pushes them to the place where they begin to soften their stance on the truth of the Scriptures. And I think that's probably one of the biggest dangers for us as believers in this time is that as the world's pressure against the church and against the teachings of the Scripture becomes stronger, we have to be even more resolute in understanding that the truth of God is far more important than what the world thinks about us. That the truth of God and true worship of God is far more important than our own livelihoods and our own well-being. Jesus knew what was going to happen when He did this. He knew He was going to be persecuted and He was going to be put to death. And we find the disciples, when they begin to teach, they understand the same things. As they continue this fight against the Pharisees and against the priests in the book of Acts, they know what's going to happen to them. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be attacked. They're going to be pushed back against. But they understand that the true worship of God is far more important. 
May God grant each of us that boldness to stand for God's true worship in the face of whatever may come. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, to see the passion that Jesus had for true worship of you and of himself. Of the declaration that he made of himself as the Messiah and what it means to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, help us to do the same. Father, as we come to the table now, help us to evaluate our hearts before you. Help us to evaluate our sin and our growth in you. Lord, we rejoice that we have this opportunity to come to the table, to celebrate, and to remember what Christ has done for us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name.